to look at our next set of biblical principles that really help fit into everything that uh, goes along with this chapter. And uh, we've been dealing in Romans chapter 10 how that the gospel has transitioned from the, from the nation of Israel to the Gentile. That's really what Romans chapter 10 is all about. It focuses on the aspect that we're all done now with the nation of Israel. We saw all the reasons why for that. And now it's, we're, we're moving into the time of the, of the gospel, moving into the Gentile nations, and certainly uh, the establishment of what we know today as the New Testament local church, or which is commonly called the church age. And I want to look at verses 17, uh, 18, 19, 20, 21 today, and we're going to talk about these, and then we'll come back. And here's what it says. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went out unto all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold, and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus today. We pray, Father, that you'll clear our hearts and our minds and let us focus on the task that lies before us today and help us, Lord, to uh, uh, show these folks, these dear folks, Lord, uh, from the Word of God what is uh, really in your Word uh, and all of these things pertaining to the Gentiles. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now today I want to particularly draw your attention to verse 17 and 18. And it says in those two verses, it says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Speaking about the Gentiles now. Have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went out unto all the earth, and their words unto the end of the world. Now, verse 17 says that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Then in verse 18, it says, or it asks the question, it says, and have they not heard? And then he answers that question, and what he does here is he lifts a verse out of the Old Testament out of Psalms chapter 19. And in Psalms chapter 19, and you want to turn there, we're going to go there in just a moment, here's what he says, yes, verily, their sound went to all the earth, and their words unto the end of the world. And of course, uh, uh, this is a direct quotation from Psalm chapter 19 in verses 1 through 6 in, de- in reference to God dealing with the Gentiles. Now I want to read Psalms 19, and uh, this is where we're going to be uh, here in the book of Job here in a little bit. But let me read Psalms chapter 19 verses 1 through 6, and here's what it says. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Now, I want to talk to you about one of the most incredible concepts that you're ever going to get out of the Bible. And it certainly ties into Romans chapter 10 with what we're dealing with today. And uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but there's three things that declare God's glory. I don't even know if you ever thought about it. 
But when you look at all that God is doing and all that God did, He established three things. You might know it would be three from our study on three of, of the order of things in the universe. There's three things that declare God's glory. The first one, obviously, everybody would guess. That would be Christ Himself. I don't know if you know this or not. You probably do. But Christ was the visible appearance of the invisible God. Therefore, when Christ showed up, He basically showed up for one main purpose. You know what that was? That was to declare God's glory. And that's what He did. When He walked this earth and when He was here uh, 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 after He was born, He did one thing, and that was declare the glory of God. And that's all uh, what He was about. When Christ went back to heaven, there had to be something else that took Christ's place. And we talked about this. So God needed something else to declare His glory. And that's why we have what we call in our hands today a Bible or the Word of God. The Bible is the book that declares God's glory. The Bible is the book that uh, you and I have that we can read and find out about Christ, find out about God, all that He is, all that He does. And of course, those of you who have spent any time studying your Bible, you know that that's the main thing the Bible does. Jesus Christ, when He was on this earth, He declared God's glory. The Bible, when Christ went back and God gave us the Word of God, we have today, its primary focus is to declare God's glory. That's why the theme of the Bible is not your salvation. The theme of the Bible is, if you know your Bible at all, you know is the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord. The theme of the Bible focuses toward God being exalted by His Son sitting down on the throne in Jerusalem and being crowned King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And uh, so we have Christ Himself, we have the Word of God, and there's a third thing that uh, declares God's glory, and that's found in Psalms 19, where it says in verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. When God created the uh, heavens, and Bible tells us that, uh, uh, and people kind of get uh, excited or confused about this, um, when you think of the word heaven, there's another word in your Bible that, and this is going to be important in your understanding this, we get a little bit further down the line. But uh, when, you, when you come through, talk about heaven in your Bible, we all have the, we're all victims of the mindset that, you know, we think of heaven with a nice cloudy place where you're, a lot of, you know, smoke, where you walk on clouds and harps and all that stuff and beautiful music and all that stuff. That's really not the Bible's definition of heaven. If there's another word in the Bible that is used interchangeably with the word heaven, and you need to get this word down, it's the word firmament. This is part of the confusion when you get into Genesis chapter 1 where it talks about in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth and then it comes down there and talks about heaven and it talks about firmaments and he uses them interchangeably. Now let me just say this. A firmament or a heaven is an expanse of space. We know from the Bible and you, you, you learn this and this, this, a lot of Baptists get upset about this so they don't know their Bible. But if you go over to 2 Corinthians over there uh, in 2 Corinthians 12 it is, you're going to find that the Bible says that when Paul was caught up, he was caught up to the third heaven. And that gets people nervous if they don't know their Bible because now they begin to think, well, there's a first heaven, second heaven, and a third heaven. I hope there's one. There's a, you know, and how many times have we heard the term, you know, seventh heaven, you know, and then and I've heard people say, well, there's seven heavens. No, there's only three heavens. And, uh, but the problem is when you get the mindset of heaven being angels with harps and smoky grass ground and, uh, and clouds and beautiful thing, then it kind of gets confusing. And the word heaven is used interchangeably with the word firmament. And very basically, without getting into all of it this morning and to be a great 
questions for Thursday night Bible study if you want to get more out of it. You're going to find out that where God's throne is, where Paul was caught up to, that's the third heaven. If you'd go back to Psalms 148, you'd find all three heavens laid out for you. The second heaven, as we know it, would be uh, what we would call outer space. That's a firmament. A firmament is an expanse of space. So we call it space. We call it outer space because we're on earth and it's out there, so it's outer space or an outer firmament. But a firmament is also, uh, another word for that is the word heaven. Then there's the first heaven, and the first heaven is our atmosphere. And that's where the birds fly and the planes fly and people, you know, uh, that's, that's our atmosphere. So basically, when Paul was caught up, talking about caught up to the third heaven, he was caught up through the first heaven, went through the second heaven, and was up there at the third heaven where the throne of God is. Now, I, I don't know how to get into all the details of explaining all that. I, I, I have a, I say I have a, a handle on it. I have just the tip of a handle, but I understand what we're dealing with here. But the thing that you've got us here say that the Bible says that the heavens, you see that thing? The heavens, it's plural, see? The heavens, plural, declare the glory of God. Not the heaven, the heavens, because there's three of them. The next thing I want you to see, and this is where Paul makes a reference to, is in verse 3 and 4. He says, There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. And of course, the next thing we see, that whatever, whatever, uh, whatever these heavens are declaring, it's a universal language. It goes out to all the earth. It's not limited by a language barrier. It's not limited by borders of nations. And uh, it's, it's, it's a universal, there's no language barrier to it. Everybody understands this declaration of the glory of God uh, as the heavens declare it. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. The next thing I want you to see, and this ties it in very important too, is verses 5 and 6. Which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven, and his circuit unto the ends uh, of it, and there is no, uh, uh, nothing hid from the heat thereof. Now, verses 5 and 6 uh, make the son as a bridegroom. And here's our key. This is where we begin to see that, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit deeper fashion here in a little bit. This is where we begin to see that one of the things that the heavens declare is a picture of the Son as Christ, as our bridegroom. You notice what he says here? He says, uh, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices as a strong man to run a race. That's a picture of Christ. So what he's telling us there, what he's telling us is there is that the Son and, the, uh, and all of the things that are going on here is a picture ultimately of Christ's coming. And that is the picture in Christ himself. Notice verse 6. His going forth is from the end of heaven, and His circuit. Notice how it's male. His. His. Uh, his chamber. Uh, see that thing? Uh, it's, a, it's, a person, it's a personality, and of course it's Christ. Now He said in verse 5 that it's a bridegroom coming out of His chamber, rejoicing as a strong man to run a race. In verse 6 He says His going forth is from the end of heaven, and His circuit unto the ends of earth. Now here's the key. And there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. You know what that's a picture of? That's the picture of the Holy Spirit of God. What you've got there in a very capsule form is a verse that tells you that the heavens declare the glory of God 
And then he makes the heavens and this declaration as a bridegroom going on a journey. And that journey in the, in, in, in the heavens, as you would know it, would be from east to west. That's where the sun uh, moves. That's the direction of the Holy Spirit of God in the Bible. We talked about that Thursday night. And what you have here is you have this thing going, and I think this phrase is really neat. It says down here, to the end of the world. And that's exactly what he's saying, that the Holy Spirit of God is going to light man and give man the light of God to the end of the world. And, of course, all of this is a great picture of that. Jim, let me ask you a question. We talked about this in just a few moments ago. Do you ever wonder what was going on in America, in South America, in Australia, in Africa, and in Canada while the events were unfolding in Christ's day in 33 A.D.? I mean, did everybody on the planet... I mean, you've got to remember now, we, we read the Bible about Christ coming. They didn't have newspapers, telegraphs. They didn't have computers that you could get on and send messages around the world with lightning speed. They didn't have any of that. When all the events were unfolding over in Jerusalem about Christ, and He was preaching to the nation of Israel and came to them as their Messiah, what was going on in North America? What was going on in South America? What was going on in Canada or Australia? What was going on in the rest of the world? Were they just out of luck? I mean, you stop and think about it. The last 2,000 years before Christ ever showed up or going all the way back to the events when they started. How did God deal with those nations? Those are Gentile nations. How did God get the message out to them that, that about Himself and about God and all that God was going to do? What was God's plan for revealing His glory to the Gentiles? Before the church, before there was any missionaries, all that we have today. I mean, the Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 9, that He was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. How did God do that? Did He do that? I mean, what, how do you explain that? And that is a question that, that anybody uh, that has any kind of serious thought or mindset about God in any kind of eternal sense, that, that question has to cross your mind at one point. You know, we talk about the American Indians. I think the American Indians are one of the greatly overshadowed, greatest studies that you're going to find in history. And I know, like, all history. It, it doesn't take more for a hundred years or so after an event has happened for it to get all muddled up into all the things that take place. And that's certainly true in church history, but it's also true in, in secular history. And when we talk about the American Indians in America, and I know that 90%, if not more, of what you read about that has all been tainted now. That's been changed into a, into a, a race issue, see, that America, the white man, exploited the Indians, butchered the Indians, and killed the Indians. And I agree, uh, we did. I mean, what, what America did to the American Indians who were here first uh, was an atrocity, and I, I don't make any apologies for it at all. And uh, we wanted their land, so we went in and took their land, and uh, because we had uh, horses and guns and Gatling guns and cannons, and they had bows and arrows, we won. It's just that simple. And then we relegated them to, to, to uh, reservations where they had to starve to get, and the white man was over them, and the white man took their food and made money off it and sold it to somebody else and let them starve to get. I'd be mad too. I mean, I, I'm totally on their side. But my point is this. If you understood the American Indian in his culture, if you understood how the Bible says that, 
that he is the true light that lighteth every man, and heaven declare the glory of God, you would find that God has a way through the third thing that reveals his glory, and that is the creation that he made. I, I know this, and I'm not an expert on Indians, uh, but I know this. I know that when uh, I know that uh, in in their time that they 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 reverenced someone called the Great White Father, and I know that to us that sounds archaic because we come to Baptist churches and we don't really address God in that form. But you know what? That's about as close to the description in Matthew chapter seventeen and Revelation chapter one and two as you can get to God. They worship the Great Spirit. Now we think because they were pagans and because they were heathen. Uh, that they, uh, their great spirit was some kind of, you know, different than the great spirit that, that we worship. Not necessarily so. I do know this. I know that when an Indian went out and, and uh, uh, he shot a deer or shot a buffalo or whatever it was, I know that the first thing he did is he took his weapons that he went with and went over that and knelt down. And you know what he did? He thanked the great white father and the great spirit for bringing those animals to him to feed him and his family and his tribe. That's more than most of God's people do when you sit down and eat your lunch this afternoon. And they're heathen. See how, see how it begins to all just take a, a different form than we, we know. Listen, when the pilgrims got here in the 1600s, how do you explain this? When the pilgrims got here in the 1600s and the time they moved in westward, they found Indians who wanted to know about the great white father's son who had come down and died for them and for their sins. Now, where did they get that from? You realize that there was a tribe, and I don't remember their name right now, there was a tribe from Washington State that traveled all the way down when they heard the white man had come because they heard the white man had the book that they were looking for that told them about his son and how they could be saved. Now, how did that happen? How did that happen? I'll tell you how it happened. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. You don't have to turn to it, but I'll jot it down and look at it later. One of the greatest single verses in the Bible, or two verses in the Bible, that open up the keys to what we're going to be looking at. You know what it says? It says this, For the invisible things of Him, excuse me, I may back up one verse, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it to them. That's the Gentiles. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world, that'd be Genesis 1-1 and also the book of Job in a moment, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. And of course, um, I'm telling you. Now what I'm going to do today is I'm going to give you a basic introduction to something. There's no way that I'm going to be able to uh, do all that uh, it, it, it justice. But what I'm, what I'm going to talk to you about this morning was really my beginning in the ministry. I got right with God back in 1972. All of my life, uh, before that point, I uh, was into astronomy. I loved astronomy. I think I got my first telescope when I was nine years old and progressed up to there. And uh, I was, uh, you know, at that point in my life, I was pretty dumb and stupid, and I, I believed in evolution. I, I read every book I could get on astronomy and all of the things that I could get. And I was, you know, by the time I was 15 years old, I, I had a very good understanding. I could find the constellations. I knew where everything was. I could tell where, where the planets were, the ones you can see. And uh, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty uh, intense for me and pretty much uh, was my, my life at that early point. And, you know, when I was uh, in 1972, 
I was attending Kent State University. I only went there for a couple of semesters. And uh, I remember uh, meeting up with a couple of guys who I had known uh, from uh, when I did go to church, and I hadn't been in church for many, many years. And they had grown up, and I was grown up, and we sat down there talking. And they invited me over <coughs> to the cafeteria. And they basically showed me uh, and proved to me that night. I don't have time to get into it. But they basically proved to me. And this is why I don't say, you know, people say, well, you accept the Bible by faith. No, I don't. I don't accept the Bible by faith. I accept the Bible on the basis that it's been proven to me beyond any scientific doubt that the Bible is exactly what God claimed it to be. And I have no doubt in my mind, not based on many blind faith and God wrote a book someplace and dropped it down by a parachute, you know, and I got it. And I think, no, no, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. When I talk about the Bible, I'm talking about a King James 1611 authorized version. I believe the Bible is the Word of God based on scientific fact and scientific evidence that I could prove to you beyond any scientific doubt that the Bible is exactly the book that God said it would be. And for a man to see the evidence that they showed me and then to take the position that the Bible is not an absolutely supernatural book means that you've been smoking something too long and your brain cells have died. Or you're just a good old-fashioned sinner that hates God, the Bible, and everything about God. Probably the latter. Probably the latter. Now, this is where I got started in the ministry. Once I got right with God and once I saw, uh, you know, and it was very basic. I, I went to my pastor and I said, look, I want to do whatever I can do. And he says, well, we got a youth camp uh, throughout the summer that we, we run and uh, maybe you could come out and, and help out there. And I said, that would be really great. I said, hey, you know what? I got a telescope. How about if I bring my telescope up and we can show the kids things in the heavens through the telescope? He thought that was the greatest thing in the world. But you see, I was still a new guy and I didn't know anything. I mean, I knew how to run a telescope. I didn't know anything about the Bible. So he paired me with another young man. His name was Chuck Schuster. And he paired me with another man, young man who had been saved a, a quite a while, grew up in the church, who really understood the Bible, and he also had a great understanding and appreciation for the things in, in astronomy. And God knitted our hearts together, and for the next four years, we formed ourselves into an evangelism team, and we did a program called The Gospel in the Stars. We traveled all through Ohio, sometimes went into Pennsylvania, New York, up into uh, Michigan, and uh, we traveled a whole circuit. And that's where I really learned to preach. That's where I really learned and fine-tuned all my understanding about, uh, you know, the Bible and preaching and teaching. And, and uh, Chuck would get up and he'd do the slide presentation. And then I would get up and I'd preach a message on the gospel and the star. Now, you're going to see today, and I'm going to try to remember to point all these out. Because here's what I want to do. I want to I resurrect that program. And I want to come to the point where we build three or four evangelism teams. And uh, we get some young men and some young ladies with the ability to teach. And uh, we form them into, uh, they, they put together uh, one of these different programs. And I'm going to try to list them as we go through. I'll help you. You can find your own resource material and, and put it all together. Do your own work on it. I've got some books back there on the, uh, uh, on the uh, um, visitors thing back there that, are, that I thought that, uh, that would be very good if you want to get some basic books on astronomy. They're not very expensive. You can go to any bookstore, get them, or order them. And I think that would help you because you're going to have to learn some of the technical jargon that goes along with it. And you'll see how I do that. And I'll help you too. I'll work with you once we get the teams formed. And I'd like to, I'd like to do something. One of the things I want to do is I want to, we'll do this when the moon and Jupiter's up right now and Jupiter just knocks your eyeballs out. We have a, 
We already have a telescope. A guy I told you a couple weeks ago bought the TV set. I have everything else from the old days uh, that, I, that I've had, so we just had to dig it out and blow the dust off of it, and it's all up and ready to go. Uh, Zach and I programmed a computer in the telescope the other night and got that all up and ready to fly. And uh, what I want to do in a couple of weeks when it comes back up, and right now would be a great time because the moon's starting to come into its phases, but we're not quite ready yet, is I'd like to set up right here in the parking lot. Have the slide screen set up, have somebody ready to go to do a slide presentation, put that telescope on the moon, and then turn that 50-inch television out to the street, have some signs out there, free star party, come in and da-da-da-da-da. I used to do that, and I'll tell you what, people, I used to have a little desk set up with a hand controller, and I'd say, you kid, your child can run the telescope if he wants, and he can survey the moon, and, you know, you set it on a, a fast thing, and that kid, you can push the buttons, and, you know, it'll, it'll just move up and move down. He can explore the moon, you know, and he sets a little control desk and all those things, and, and uh, you know, and it gives you an opportunity. And then to have some of you there, you know, not to come down heavy-handed on them about the gospel, not to uh, you say, now look at the picture of the sun. See, that's hot up there. You want to turn in hell like that? Yeah, that's not what we're looking for. So that, that'll come a little later. But just talk to them. Tell them who we are. Tell them what we do. And, uh, you know, and there'll be plenty of opportunities. We had more opportunities than we could, we could do. And uh, very frankly, some of you will do a better job than I did with it. And, uh, you know, and, and I'll work the telescopes. And I've got some people who are going to help me learn that side of it and, uh, and work all of that. And we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll put that together. And like I said, we're going uh, to try to do that. I, it was something that you could host a block party in your own home in your own neighborhood. We'll put up flyers, go up, canvas it, say free star party at so-and-so's house, you know, uh, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock tonight. The good thing about the year we're going into is it gets dark now quicker. Pretty soon it'll be dark by 6 o'clock. We're in the summertime, it doesn't get dark, real dark enough to do it till 10 o'clock, 10.30. But we don't have that problem now. It's dark another couple of weeks. It'll, we change the time again. It'll be dark by 6 o'clock and we'll be good to go. But there's all kinds of opportunities. It does two things. One, it helps you uh, get yourself... Um, tuned into working with people, uh, winning people to Christ, doing the slide presentation. I would say that within your groups uh, that you could, uh, you could find four or five people who have the ability and work together. And it's just a great, great teaching tool uh, to help people uh, get, uh, get it all put together. And I think it'll, it'll really work. And what today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take some time and I'm going, to, I'm going to walk you through some of this. There's no way I can do it all. But I want to tie it into Romans chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, where he talks about the people, how did they hear? And I want to show you one of the greatest absolute Bible studies, teachings you'll ever come across in the Bible, and that is the gospel of the stars. The base for you guys to build your teams from and some incredible material that, that you probably have never seen. I think the mark of the Laodicean church today uh, is, is basically shallow Christianity. Uh, most Christians don't even know their Bible, let alone developing yourself beyond the Bible, putting in an understanding of history and, and science or whatever it is. Most Christians, very frankly, and this is certainly not a criticism, but just where we're at today, most Christians, when you start to talk to them about astronomy, they'll answer back, oh yeah, I, I, I've studied astrology. Uh, they don't even know the difference between astrology and astronomy. Truth of the matter is, astronomers and astrologers don't get along very well, see? Astronomy, obviously, is the study of the cosmos, the heavens, the planets, the galaxies, the sun, the moon. Astrology is taking, making a horoscope up and following your life by the stars. One of the reasons why astronomers don't like astrologers is because astrologers are 100% bogus. 
You'll talk about the age of Aquarius, and they'll say, we're in the age of Aquarius, or I forget what age we're in right now, you know, age of bona fide monkeys or whatever the case may be, you know, and we get thinking, we're in this age, and astronomers know that that's not where we're at. We're not in that constellation as, a, as the Earth moves around the sun and cuts in the constellation, and that's really what sets it up. If you go out in the Earth, they can figure out the Earth is in the, the constellation Sagittarius, as it because the constellations are around. So they'll say, well, they we're in the age of Sagittarius. We're in the age of Gemini, depending on where the Earth is. And most of the time, we're someplace else that they don't know that we're there. And it doesn't work very well. But anyway, putting forth the effort to learn the material to get it down. Now, our base text for today, and we're going to start out here, uh, like I said, and I can only whet your appetite, will be the book of Job. And I do want you to turn to Job chapter 38. This is going to be where we're going to base from now. While you're turning there, let me just tell you, the book of Job is the oldest book in your Bible. People get confused because they think that Genesis is the first book in your Bible, therefore that Genesis might be the, must be the oldest book. And of course, that's not true. Moses wrote Genesis almost 2,400 years after the events took place. Job is your oldest book in the Bible, probably written down around Abraham time someplace. Anyway, well over a thousand years before Moses wrote his books. And if you want the most scientific book in the Bible, uh, and you want to cut your teeth on it, it'll be Job. It'll be Job that will tell you that the winds follow circuits. We call it the jet stream. And the areologists didn't figure that out till about 1900. They had no idea there was a jet stream uh, anywhere at all before probably 1940, 1950, 1960. But Job knew about the jet stream. You look at a pretty snowfall, and uh, the snowfall comes down, and boy, you look at a little snowflake that falls on your dark black jacket, and you see all the little intricacy things of it. You know what people say? People say there's not two snowflakes alike. You know where they get that? Job said that. Job said that. You go out and go into crime this afternoon, or last night, or tomorrow, and um, you... Uh, uh, police come over and they start to do an investigation and they, they you know what they're going to do? They're going to dust for fingerprints. They dust for fingerprints, they lift the print, they run their print through a computer, they made a match, you're busted. You know what? They didn't know fingerprints even existed till about 1920. A guy by the name of Putman developed that concept. How did Job know? How did Job know in 1918 B.C. that God sealed up the hand that every man, that every man's fingerprints were different? Job's a scientific book, see? Job's a scientific book. You get out there and you start studying oceanology and study that stuff. You know what they found? They couldn't explain this. It was about 1930 they found fresh water down in the sea. Fresh water right in the middle of salt water. But yet Job knew about that. It was Einstein that cleared the theory that light was always moving. Yet Job made it very clear that light was moving in the book of Job. Always moving and never standing still. Call it light speed. It's Job that understood the concept of the spectroscope. It was Job that talked about the telephone and the telegraph long before Samuel Morris and Alexander Graham Bell ever put it together. Job, without a doubt, is the oldest and most scientific book in the Bible. So when we want to talk about the heaven declaring the glory of God, we're going to have to start in Job. Now what I'm about to show you today, personally to me, is probably the single most amazing thing I've ever found in the Bible. I'll be the first to tell you, I don't understand it all. I probably don't understand much of it. But with what I do glimpse out of it and what I do see, my, 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 it's things like this that make me love God, love the Word of God, and want to spend the rest of my life going through it. 
And uh, Job says in Job chapter 38, verse 30, here's what he says. The waters are hid as with a stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Canst thou bind the sweet influences of Pleiades, or loose the bands of Orion? Canst thou bring forth Meseroth in his season, or canst thou guide Octurus with his sons? Knowest thou the ordinances of heaven? Canst thou set the dominion thereof in the earth? Now, I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but each verse has two components to it, and the first component matches the second component in each verse. As far as I'm concerned, uh, in material like this is the key to everything. It's absolutely incredible. Notice he says, the waters are hid with a stone. That's the first part. And the face of the deep is frozen. That's the second part. Now, those two have to go together some way, and there's a key to put them together. Now, what we get really into in verse 31, can now bend the sweet influences of the Pleiades. That's a constellation. Or loose the bands of Orion. Orion's a constellation. Canst thou bring forth Meseroth in his season? Meseroth is another word for the twelve signs of the zodiac. Or canst thou guide Octurus with his sons? See, there's a counterpart to every one of these. Now, here's what we want, verse 33. Knowest thou the ordinances of heaven? Canst thou set the dominion thereof in the earth? Now, an ordinance in the Bible is a command that is put into a statute or a structure and then a law. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all of the host of them by the breath of his mouth, for he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood still. God commanded the heavens into existence and then formed them into a statute of a law called an ordinance. And uh, we know from the Bible, being around it any while, that the Bible, uh, the number eight in the Bible is a number of new beginnings. We know that. And of course, when you start coming down through here, you're going to find in the Bible, we're going to, this is what we're going to look at today, you're going to find eight key things in the heavens that make up the ordinances. And as far as I'm concerned, everything in the Bible about Christ's coming, the beginning, the end, and everything in between is wound up in these eight. Though we'll never dig it all out. But boy, I'll tell you something. When he talks about the gospel of the stars, he's, that's an understatement. That's an understatement. And uh, notice verse 33. Knowest thou the ordinances of heaven, canst thou set the dominion thereof in the earth. You know what you got? That dominion on the earth is Christ's coming. The ordinances of heaven. There's something connected with those eight ordinances in heaven that has something to do with the setting up of God's dominion on this earth. That's what you got. Now, when we look up in the heavens tonight, and if you were to go out and look at the heavens or, and study them, you'd find uh, seven different things. You'd find the sun. You'd find the moon. You'd find planets, nine of them, though they say that Pluto is no longer a planet, but most people still count it as a planet. You'd find things called galaxies and nebulas. We're going to explain all these in a moment. We'll get into our slides. You'd find constellations, constellations or grouping of stars that paint a picture. There's 88 constellations that we have uh, and understand. Within that 88, we have 12 that is around the sun that we revolve around, and we see those constellations uh, around us, which is called the zodiac, but we get a view, a panoramic view of all, well, not all 88 from the northern hemisphere, but you see some down south that you can't see up here. But basically, there's 88 constellations. So you have that. You have stars. I think that probably I read one place a long time ago that, that uh, with a naked eye, you go out into a, not around here maybe, but you go out to 
some farm country someplace, you can basically see about 5,000 stars with a naked eye. You get a telescope of just moderate uh, of aperture, and you could probably quadruple that. So we have seven things. Now, within these seven, and in your Bible, eight things are given special mention as to the ordinances of heaven, and they're the key. Four of them are in Job chapter 38. And you want to remember now that uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20 says that uh, the key to thing is everything that God does is by what He made. So we want to keep that in mind. All right, now let's look at these eight things and get a... And we don't have time to go through all of them, but I'm going to give you the key ones. And, um, and this is some incredible stuff. Now, the first one we have is the Pleiades. You'll find that in Job 38, 32, and Job chapter 9, verse 9. The Pleiades are called seven sisters. Last night, uh, 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 William came out, out of my house about 11 o'clock, and he uh, walked down the steps, and he saw over there at the east. He says, oh, there's a little dipper. And what he saw was not the Little Dipper. What he saw was uh, the constellation, the Pleiades. Pleiades are called the seven sisters. They're made up of seven stars you can see with your naked eye. When you look at them through a telescope, there's probably 203 stars in there. But with your naked eye, you could see seven stars. I guarantee you, in our study of the gospel, of the stars, the Pleiades and the seven stars are going to line up to the seven churches. Guarantee you. You can put that down right now without even worrying about it. Then you have Orion. Zach was telling me that when he goes out to go to work in the morning at 4 o'clock, uh, there's big Orion right up there on top of, a, right above in the east. And Orion is a winter constellation. And uh, if you get up about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, you'll see it. Uh, it's very easy to see. Uh, re- big constellation. But Orion is the, called the mighty hunter. And Orion will represent for us Nimrod, the mighty hunter, out of Genesis chapter 10. He'll be Nimrod in our study. Then you have Meseroth, which is found in Job chapter, I'm sorry, Orion is in Job 9, 9, and Job 38, 32 also. Then you have uh, Meseroth, Job chapter 38, verse 32. We already talked about that's the 12 signs of the zodiac. Then you have Octurus, Job chapter 38, verse 32. And uh, Octurus is in the, the brightest star. In fact, it's the fourth brightest star that we can see in the northern hemisphere. And it's the brightest star in the constellation Botes, which Botes is the herdsman. He's sometimes called the guardian of the north. And the reference in the Bible is to Octurus and his sons. That'll be a reference to Christ. Then in Acts chapter 19, verse 35, you have Jupiter, the planet Jupiter. And we're going to talk about Jupiter here in a little bit. We'll look at some pictures of it. Jupiter is the only planet mentioned in the Bible, and it's mentioned in Acts chapter 19, verse 35, and uh, it's mentioned in connection with an image falling down to this planet from Jupiter. Now, most people have a real tough time with that because, uh, and here's their position on it, they'll say, well, those people uh, that, that were back then, they didn't know a lot about astronomy, which is not true, and so they saw things they didn't understand, so they wrote these things down, we get them and read them, you know, 2,000 years later, and it says an image fell down from Jupiter, it really did, not just the way they interpreted it. But the only problem with that is that they didn't write the Bible, God wrote the Bible. And God never has a problem in interpretation. I can, you can take this to the bank and, and cash it this afternoon. When he told you an image fell down from Jupiter, you can bet an image fell down from Jupiter. And there's a reason why it fell down from Jupiter. And there's a reason why Jupiter is the only planet mentioned in your Bible. We'll talk about it a little bit later. Jupiter. All right, the next one you'll find in Job 9.9 is called the Chambers of the South. That'll be the Clouds of Magellan. If you would go down south, you'd see these two big bright spots up in the sky. 
Magellan are called the clouds of Magellan because he was the first one that sailed back in 1500 or 1400 down in the southern hemisphere and he found them, discovered them, so they named them after, after him. Then, of course, we have the sun, Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, which is always going to be a type of Christ. And then we have uh, the moon, Job chapter 25, verse 5, and the moon's always going to be a type of the church. Now, these are your eight ordinances of heaven. These are the eight things that are mentioned in the Bible by name. And every one of them is very significant in playing a role in understanding how God does what He does in the gospel of the star. Now let's look at some of these before we get into our slides here. Let's talk about verse 32, Mezeroth, the 12 signs of the zodiac. You're going to see how now that many of you new Christians that get into the Bible basic classes, how this is going to help you now put all this stuff together. And this is a study in itself. One of the slide programs you can do Uh, and we'd have to come up with some specific slides. I used to have some, but they're long wore out, that actually showed the constellations, and you could could actually go through and and really uh, lay them out and show uh, how they were Bible characters. For instance, you have Virgo, the virgin. That's a no-brainer. The Northern Cross, which is known as Cygnus. Uh, You're going to find that uh, Leo the Lion, uh, type of Christ, Revelation 5.5. Hercules. Sons of God, Genesis chapter 6. You're going to find, uh, and of course, if you know this, you know the Bible says in Psalm 75 and Psalm 48 that heaven is north. If you want a direction to heaven, heaven's north. The Bible's very clear on that. And you're going to find that uh, he talks about in Psalm 48 the sides of the north. And you're going to find all of those things. And yet when you start to study the north, we know that the devil's an imitator of Christ, don't we? Surely is. So we now know that he imitates Christ in everything that we see. So there's no, there's no uh, great surprise that there's two norths. There's what they call true north, and there's what they call magnetic north. And one of them isn't the right north. See? You won't, you won't beat the Bible when it comes all down to those things. Uh, we know that, the, uh, we know that uh, the greatest prophecy in the Bible and the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So up in the heavens, you've got a constellation of a man by the name of Ophesius, Ophesus is a man. He's a type of Christ. You know what he's doing? He's wrestling with serpines. That's a serpent constellation. And you know in that constellation what happened? Ophesus has got his foot on the head serpent, and that serpent's tail come around stinging him on the foot. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That's where it's at. And uh, you'll find that, uh, as I said, heaven's north. If you look right above the north, pole, a north uh, star, you'd find a constellation called Coron- Coroni Borealis. Corona, crown, borealis, <clears throat> uh, north. Uh, borealis means north. And, of course, we talk about the aurora, aurora borealis, the lights of the north. See, aurora, light, borealis, north. Well, we have corona, crown, borealis, the northern crown. And you'll find that if you look up into the heavens, you'll see that little constellation. It's shaped like that with stars, and it's shaped like a crown. And it's right over the north. <clears throat> And you're going to find out that wrapped around the north and wrapped around that crown with his mouth going right to it is called Draco the dragon. Draco the dragon comes around as a serpent. Isaiah chapter 27, he's called the crooked serpent in the sea. And he wraps right around the north and his mouth is ready to devour that crown. Well, that's the theme of your Bible, see? So, I mean, uh, when he gets into the constellations, they're quite incredible. I personally, from our time in the Bible, we know that God's plan in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, and we study this very on our chart over there, and we know how it all goes. We know that uh, the 12 uh, tribes of Israel, 
Uh, we know that uh, if you know your Bible, you know that in Acts chapter 17 and Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, we're told that, uh, uh, that all the nations on this earth were set up uh, to the bounds that God established them according to the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. If you look at a map, you do any study out on a globe, you'll find that there's 12 natural boundaries on planet earth. Those 12 natural boundaries will come into effect in the millennium when God divides the earth up. And around this earth, you'll find 12 signs of the zodiac, each one of them a tribe to one of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And when Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 moves out from here into the galactic scale that we've talked about many, many times, it'll start with those 12 constellations would have to do with the 12 tribes of Israel. It's all built around the nation of Israel. You've got Revelation chapter 21, verse 12. New Jerusalem has 12 foundations, 12 gates, 12 angels, uh, representing the 12 tribes, 12 pearls. It's got a tree of life that banners 12 manners of fruit uh, once each month, and there's 12 months of the year. Everything is set up based on that. Now also, here's where you got it. The constellations tell us the times and the seasons. That's what he's talking about there in when he says, can now bring forth Meseroth before his season. That's really what he's talking about. Can you make the constellations, can you make the seasons come before uh, their time? And of course, the answer to that is you no. Know. But we also know that if the constellations are part of the times and the seasons, and they represent the Bible, the story, and everything in it, Paul told them over there in 1 Thessalonians, of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, irreverent to the second coming of Christ. It's all in the heavens. When the Bible said the heaven declare the glory of God, you've got everything up there that's in here. We just don't see it. That's because we're too busy doing everything else in life. But that's the bottom line. All right, now what we're going to do now is I want to bring us through our slides. And I'm going to have to help a couple guys move this over here, if you would. That out of my way. I'm going to just push that. Uh, put it over in the corner, Kyle. Get somebody to help you. And I'm going to have the lights off here in just a minute, but let these guys get their thing done here. Now, if you're sitting over on the side here and you can't see, we'll put some chairs up in the back. I suggest if you can't see the slides up here, you do that. Otherwise, uh, you're going to kind of get lost in everything, and I don't want that to happen. I'm going to get my thing here. All right, you, you leave the... Uh, go ahead and turn the lights off. All right, let me get going here. Find out where we're at. Uh, here we are. Now, this is a... <coughs> This is a uh, this is a artist's conception of our solar system. And remember, I told you that the sun was a type of Jesus Christ. Well, there's the sun there, right there in the middle. If you look around it, there's Earth right there, and then the inner planets right in here. Now, our solar system is divided into two sections: the inner planets and the outer planets. The inner planets end with uh, uh, Mars, uh, which would be right there, the red planet. Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus. Uh, Neptune and Pluto make up the outer planets. But I want you to notice one thing. They all revolve around the sun. The sun is the center of our solar system. The sun's a type of Christ. And in that, the sun should be the center of your life and everything that you do. Just as the planets in the solar system revolve around the sun, everything in your life ought to revolve around the sun. And uh, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, it talks about that the Son of Righteousness, a reference to Christ, shall arise with healing in His wings. And the uh, reference there is to the second coming of Christ. And Jesus Christ is called the Son of Righteousness. But when you look at that passage, it's not spelled S-O-N, as we would think it to be so spelled. It's spelled S-U-N. 
because he's clearly tying you back to Romans chapter 1 and the gospel and the stars. Now our sun, you go out and look at it today, uh, our sun is just, uh, it's very bright, you can't hardly look at it, but our sun is just, a th- one of the things you've got to know, our sun is just an average star. Our sun is just an average star. There are stars out there that are so much bigger than our star, our sun, that you could put a million of our suns in it. And our sun has a diameter of 865,000 miles. I mean, it's an incredible, incredible uh, distance. Uh, and yet there are some stars out there or suns out there that you could put a million, two million of our suns in the middle of them. That's how big they are. Our sun is just an average star. Our sun is set exactly right. Most people think that it gets colder in the winter uh, because we get farther from the sun in our orbit and then it gets hotter in the summer because we get closer to the sun. Most people think that. That's not true. Uh, in fact, we are closer as a planet to the sun in the, in the wintertime than we are in the summertime. What changes is the angle of the, of the earth and its angle, not the distance from it. But uh, if uh, you... Uh, now here's a picture of, of a sun and I have filters that you can actually see the sun just like this. Those dark spots on the sun are called sunspots. And they're basically made up of, of material that is cooler than the surrounding area around them. They tell us that the core temperature or the uh, surface temperature of the sun is about 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The core temperature is about 27 million degrees. Those sunspots that you see right there in other places, uh, they say they're, they're about 6,000 degrees, therefore cooler, therefore they show up in a darker way. And of course, uh, the sun is nothing more, and I'll show you this one here, the sun is nothing more, uh, that is a uh, hydrogen alpha picture of the sun, that puts it into a different light, and you can see the flares coming off the side. I also have a telescope that you're actually able to watch the flares come off the side, uh, but uh, what the sun basically is, if you don't already know, it's about 100 billion, maybe 100 trillion hydrogen nuclear bombs going off every millisecond. It's a gigantic fusion reactor. And it's nothing more than hydrogen expelling itself to a great expanse over and over again. It's absolutely, without a doubt, a, a, a gigantic nuclear fission bomb. That's why there's so much radiation that comes from the sun. It's called solar radiation. Now, we don't get affected by the solar radiation because of what we have around us that's called the ozone layer, which you women are destroying at a rapid rate with your hairspray. <laughs> but the bottom line is that keeps out those harmful rays. There's another type of rays out in outer space called cosmic rays, and they're just as deadly. But nobody knows where the cosmic rays come from unless you have a King James stick to an authorized birth. Remember a couple of nights on Thursday night? I forget. It's been a couple of months now. Somebody asked a question about... Uh, uh, I forget what you even asked now, and I showed you uh, uh, how, what, what, what all that is and how it pertains back to God and what God really is and how the sun's a picture of it. And so all of that, you know, three types of rays come from the sun. X-rays, they're invisible. Light rays, you can see them. Heat rays, you can't see them, but you can feel them. God is three persons. God the Father, that'd be X-rays. He's invisible. You can't see them. But we did see God in the person of Jesus Christ. That's light rays. And then we have the Holy Spirit of God, which is heat rays. You feel them, but you can't see them. It all fits into it that way. Now, this is a program that you can do just on the sun. And your program needs to be about 20, 30 minutes. You don't want to blast them out for an hour and a half uh, like I'm going to do to you today. But anyway, uh, but the next one here is uh, the greatest example of the sun. And that is when God fixed the atmosphere, he fixed it just right. That when the sun sets... 
and the sun rises in the morning, that the first thing you see and the last thing you see is the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son cleanses us from all sin. God fixed the atmosphere. So when that sun set, it set in a blood-red atmosphere. He fixed the morning atmosphere. So when it raises in the morning or comes up in the morning, it's blood-red. The last thing He wanted man to see and the first thing He wanted him to see in the morning is that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And that's the, that's the sun, and it's an incredible study. He's called the day star uh, in 1 Peter. Christ is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. The day star is the sun. That's our star. Remember I told you the sun's just a star? That's our star that's out during the day. He's called over there in, uh, he's called in Revelation chapter 2, verse 28, the morning star, because it's the star that comes up in the morning. Uh, some of you know this, some of you don't. One of the reasons why I wouldn't touch an NIV with anything in the whole wide world, and if you have one here today, that's between you and God. I'm not criticizing you, but uh, the reason why I would ne- one of the reasons why I would never touch it is the fact that it's corrupted itself over 60,000 places in, another, in the King James Bible. But the other place is this. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, you have the greatest passage in the Bible on the fall of Lucifer becoming Satan. And Satan is called in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, he's called son of the morning, son of the morning, son of the morning. You know what the NIV translators did? They took out Son of the Morning and they put in Morning Star. They took the Morning Star reference out of First Peter to Jesus Christ and stuck it to the devil in Isaiah chapter 14. I'm pausing here to get my composure again. Okay. Now let's go on to the next one, and that'll be the moon. Now the great thing about the moon, and the moon talked about in Job chapter 25, verse uh, 2, uh, 3, 4, and 5, is the fact that... Uh, it says there, Behold, the, even to the moon, and it shineth not. <clears throat> now the moon doesn't shine by itself. The moon reflects the light from the sun. And in that, the moon is a type of the Christian, because you and I don't have any light of our own. The light that we have, we have to reflect from the light of the sun, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how that, that thing works. Now the sun, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the moon is uh, about 3,600 miles in diameter. It's about 250,000 miles from planet Earth. It's the first place that we went to when we stepped out in outer space. And uh, there's a lot of talk about going back. Uh, whether we do or not, I don't know. But we'll never get past the moon. There is no way that we will ever get to any of the planets. And now they're coming up with an idea of sending people to these planets that with only a one-way ticket. And they're going, oh, no, you're laughing. They'll find goofy people that'll do it. You know what? You will. I mean, they'll find goofy people that are so hot up on this scientific stuff, they think the greatest adventure in the world was to go and die on another planet. And, of course, the reason why they know they'll never do a return trip is because of the cosmic radiation. And you be, it take you, uh, take you a year to, uh, depending on how far it is, it take you a y- over a year to get to Mars, uh, a year back, and then what? You're going to stand there 20 minutes and then head back? No, you'd have to be there a year. And there's no ozone layer around Mars like there is around Earth. And there's no protection that you can have in a spaceship going from there to here for a year. Cosmic radiation would kill you long before you ever got back. So they're looking at now just a one-way ticket. And uh, I have submitted them a list of people that I think would be very fine for that that endeavor. Uh, I'm just kidding. Now, you know, before we went to the moon, they always thought the moon was was a... uh, the moon was a, a, you know, had life on it. Orson Welles did a thing like the first man on the moon, you know, and had all these little creatures down inside of it. And they thought maybe they lived underneath the planet. But I knew long before they ever went to the moon that there was no life on it. Because once I figured out that the moon was a type of Christ, 
that I've read in Colossians that we are dead and our life is hid with Christ, that I knew they'd never find any life on the moon. And, of course, they didn't. They didn't. And uh, we move on here. There's, this is a beautiful picture. You see this a lot if you're paying attention. This is called Earthshine. And really the moon here is just the crescent. This is what you would see uh, out. But it, the light from that is coming back to earth, reflecting back, and you're seeing the other part of the moon uh, reflected back from the earth's light. That's one of the most beautiful things that you ever see in your life anywhere. And, of course, the moon is a type of Christian. Many times, uh, you know, that uh, uh, when you're out at night, uh, the moon is almost so bright, especially when it gets full. I always thought the phases of the moon and their time to the days of the month. I always thought the phases of the moon pictured the different kinds of Christians. Some Christians, uh, they shine bright like the full moon. And, you know, when the moon is really full and it's really bright, it casts a shadow on this earth. You, it's, it's almost like it's, it's daytime out there. And there's a lot of Christians like that. There's a lot of Christians that their light just shines. And then as it progressively goes down to the point where uh, there's no light at all, we call it new moon. And, of course, that's just the way a lot of God's people are. At the same time, there's times that I've seen the moon out there and it's been so bright, and, uh, and yet 20 minutes later, the clouds of this world will come in and they'll block out the light from the moon. You see, the moon's out at night, and you and I will be the light of the night. The moon is a picture of you and my testimony in a dark world, and the only light we have, we have to reflect from the sun that the world can see. And many times, what happens? The clouds of this world come in, and it blocks out the light, and our testimony is gone. That picture up there is a picture of an eclipse. And science tells us that an eclipse is a scientific phenomenon that when the earth comes in between the sun and the moon, it blocks out the light. And that's a scientific phenomenon called an eclipse. But those of us who know our Bible know that that's a picture of an out-of-fellowship child of God. Anytime the world comes in between you and the sun, your light's going out. And that's exactly what you have. And it's an incredible picture. Now we're going to move on through the planets here quickly. And uh, the first planet we're going to look at uh, is here is, uh, is Mercury. And Mercury is a, is a, is a great planet little planet to study. It's not very big. It's only about, uh, uh, only about 3,000 miles in diameter. And uh, the biggest problem with Mercury is it's only 36 million miles from the sun. And uh, it's hot. In fact, this, it bears the distinction of being the ho hottest and the coldest planet. On the hot side, it faces the, uh, faces the sun. It's about 800 degrees Fahrenheit, hot enough to melt lead. On the other side, it's away from the sun. It's 300 degrees minus 300 degrees. It's the coldest planet anywhere. And of course the reason for that is because its rotation of 88 days is the same period it takes for it to go around the sun, so it always sees the same side. And this was taken here uh, by one of our Mariner probes, Mariner 10 in 1975, that basically, uh, uh, basically uh, uh, you can see it, it's a mosaic, you can see the stripes down there as they went by and then they put it together. Just looks like our moon. In fact a lot of people think it is the moon. And of course uh, Mercury all of the planets, except one, all of the planets are named after the gods. And this goes back to Genesis chapter 6 and all the way up through Babylon and some of those places with the Greeks and the Romans. But uh, Mercury was the Greek god, or he was the messenger of the gods. He was supposed to be fast. He gave next day delivery. I mean, he was right there. So he's called, and this planet is so close to the sun, its rotation is so fast 
that uh, Mercury's hard to see. I've only seen it three or four times in my life because you've got to get on a flat deal because it never gets very high in the sky. We, I mean, there's not much to see anyhow, but uh, just look at a little blue dot. But uh, it's, uh, it's named after the, the Greek god Mercury, uh, which also has another name of Hermes, which was the god of, uh, of speed or the god of uh, the messenger of the gods. No atmosphere, no moons, and just a very cold on one side, very hot on the other side. Then our next planet is Venus. Venus, without a doubt, is the most mysterious planet because uh, it's caught and shrouded in clouds. And all oh, for years and years and years, in the 1800s, they, they, they superimposed that there was life uh, like a vegetation garden under the clouds. They theorized that because it was always covered in clouds, that uh, it was uh, actually, uh, you know, very lush, a very tropical place where, uh, you know, probably a civilization thrived, you know, um, and um, which prompted some science fiction movies about it. You know, one of them was Love Women from Venus, you know, which was a very good one. Um, but uh, there again, you can see it's completely sh- nothing you can see on it. And for years and years and years, it was thought that if any place m- might have had life because we couldn't see it, it was that. Well... We, we sent some probes, as did the Russians, and uh, a little bit later on we found out that, uh, you know, uh, Venus, which has about a diameter of about 7,500 miles, it's about 67 million miles from the sun, um, and it's probably uh, relative to our planet, so everybody thought that that would where it would be. But, uh, you know, when they landed the probes on it, and then later on they, they had a way of cutting through the cloud with a radio telescope, this is what they really saw. And that's really Venus. Venus is probably one of the most harsh, wicked places that you could ever land. It's in a constant rainstorm of sulfuric acid. And uh, you'd last down there. Its temperature on the surface is about uh, uh, 900 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, and it's just, a, it's just a bad place to be. And, of course, uh, uh, Venus was named after the god of love and uh, Venus. Uh, and, of course, uh, that's where we get our word from the, word from the Romans, venereal disease, Venus, venereal. Uh, she was the god of love uh, with the Greeks and the Romans. So that's always interesting. Our next one is our own home planet, Earth. I took this picture myself when I was up in a UFO about four or five years back and checking things out. And uh, I thought I did a pretty good shot there. Earth. Now, i got to tell you. All of these planets are named after the gods except one. I've always thought this was strange. All of the planets are named after the gods except one. And the name that bears this planet is the name that God gave it in Genesis chapter 1, and nobody ever changed it. They felt free to change all the other planets when they discovered them and named them after their gods in Genesis chapter 6, hoping they'd come back. But Earth was left with the name that God gave it, and it's called Earth to this day. And Earth has a diameter of 7,900 miles. It, we, at a relative comfort distance of 93 million miles, uh, has one moon, and it's the only planet uh, that uh, has life on it. And, uh, and the real question is not, is there life on it, but is there intelligent life on it? That's what we're trying to discern now. The next one is Mars. And Mars is called the red planet. And the reason for that is because when they first looked at it, you see the R right there. So they said, let's call it Red Planet. No, it's red because when you look at it in the sky, it's red. That obviously Mars was the god of war, uh, red for blood. 
It's got a diameter of 4,200 miles. It's the distance from the sun is 142,000, a million miles. And uh, now it's a, here's a case where this is where our main emphasis now is on, on ex exploration. We've sent all them little rovers and, uh, to Mars, and uh, uh, Mars is a, here's a great picture of Mars. And back in the 1800s, there was an Italian astronomer by the name of Schiaparelli. And he really, he really, uh, Mars was his deal. And Schiaparelli come up with all of these drawings that showed canal-like features on Mars. Some of the drawings are absolutely incredible. Now you can see these green areas here, or these dark areas, and these little fingers coming out on here, all there and over here. Now for years and years and years, we thought that they were, that was vegetation. See the thing up at the top? That's the polar cap, just like we have. There's a southern polar cap, just like we have. You see that blue haze around there? That's an atmosphere, just like we've got. See? And for years and years and years, they saw this, and in the wintertime, this thing all shrinks up, and it gets pretty barren, so obviously they were thinking, hey, you know what, wintertime here, everything gets brown and dies too, and in the springtime, it all comes back out again. And so they thought, and Schiaparelli actually had went to the point, and it was accepted almost universally, that he had come to the point where he had drawn these little fingers here and taken them out and connected them. And they thought that there was a civilization on, on uh, Mars that was digging those canals to run the water from the polar caps into the desert areas for irrigation. And that's, well, that was the standard thing, and it was a big flap over it. And, uh, you know, uh, the only problem with none of the other astronomers that were looking at Mars with the same kind of telescopes that he had could see those lines. It was something that he saw. And uh, it got debunked after a while. And, of course, when we finally landed on Mars, uh, we, uh, we realized that that was not true. This is a picture of one of the rovers on the very surface of Mars, and you can see it's barren. And uh, those dark areas that they thought were vegetation are just dirt, dust, darker spots. And uh, it's a thing where um, Mars is a dead planet. All the planets are dead planets. They may spend $100 billion of your tax dollars trying to find life on it, but there is no life there. The only life on this solar system or this universe is on planet Earth. And uh, that's don't know how that's going to be. Now, my favorite thing on Mars, and I, boy, this, is, this, this has always been my favorite feature on Mars, and this is called Olympus Mons. Olympus Mons, that is a gigantic volcano. That volcano base right there is the size of the state of Nebraska. That volcano goes up 18 miles into the, into the air. That is a gigantic volcano called Olympus Mons that is on on Mars, and I'll tell you what, I, you know, Mars comes into opposition. The last time it came in was about, oh, uh, 2001, 2002, and I actually photographed it uh, and got some spectacular photographs of it, but I've, I, and I've tried to do this, and I have and if never got, could do it, and I think it's because of where I live, and in, in, in it's not as clear and steady as some places, but I've seen many, many pictures of guys who took a picture of Mars that right down in the, in the, in the barren area, there'd be a little white, little white speck. And that white speck is the clouds that are hanging over Mount Olympus. It is so high that it forms its own clouds over the top of it, and a Earth-based telescope taking pictures of it can actually pick it up. I, I've never been able to pick it up. I've even seen some pictures that you could actually see uh, the outlying of it. Because it, it's so big, it's the size of the state of, like I said, of uh, Nebraska. It's incredible how big it is. But uh, Mars is a, you know, Mars is a, has two moons, Phobos and Demos, 
and uh, Mars, they're connected with death and war too. And uh, the temperature on Mars ranges from a balmy day like we'd have here in Kansas City at 81 degrees during the day, which you could go out without a spacesuit on and, you know, and have no problem with it. Uh, but then at night it goes to 274 degrees below zero. And uh, that would change things a little bit. Uh, the other problem with it is Mars has a very thin atmosphere, and if you ever saw Total Recall, you go out, your eyeballs bug out, and you fall up, and your head blows off. Which is not a bad thing if you've got nothing else to do that day. Anyway, now we move out into the outer planets. And Jupiter is the planet that uh, probably is, is more, and this is one of the ones mentioned in the Bible, in Acts chapter 19. Jupiter uh, begins the outer planets, and Jupiter uh, is, a, is a gas giant. In other words, there's no solid part to Jupiter. Every other planet we've seen on the inward, an inward side were, were rock core bedrock. Jupiter, Saturn, and the planets moving out are all gas giants, almost like the spiritual from the physical. And uh, J uh, J Jupiter is an incredible, credible, credible planet. It's called the Jupiter was the king, uh, you know, to the Romans, Jupiter was their king god. Uh, to, uh, in Germans, he was Thor. Uh, he was Zeus to the Greeks. And, uh, but uh, he's king of the planet. It's the biggest planet, 88,850 miles around. And it lies at a distance of uh, 483,000, um, uh, 483 million uh, miles from the sun. Uh, it's incredible. It's the largest planet. If you just have a, a, a modest telescope, you can see features. These two, the most prominent features is that cloud belt right there and that cloud belt. If you've got a small telescope, just a two or three inch telescope, uh, you put about 100 power on it, you'll be able to see a, a yellow ball and you'll see that band and you'll see that band. A little bigger telescope and you'll actually see the great red spot. When I pop our camera into the, into the telescope and put that on the big creepy screen, it just looks everything almost on there, what you can see, and uh, in color. And that, that great red spot there, that's 30,000 miles across. And that great red spot is a storm that's been forming on there for the last 300 years. It's been raging. Uh, the, the, the surface of Jupiter has got to be the most, one of the most unbelievable things that you could ever want to be around. I mean, it's absolutely horrendous. I can't even describe it. Uh, Jupiter is connected with Satan in the Bible. Uh, it's connected with an image that fell down. It's connected in so many ways to the Antichrist and to all the things that go along with it. And uh, Jupiter has a total of 17 moons. Here's four of the brightest moons, and you can actually see these in a pair of binoculars when you look at, uh, if you hold them steady enough. And this is, the, this is the comparison. There's Earth right there to the size of Jupiter, to the size of the outer planets. There's uh, uh, Saturn, and there's Uranus, and then there's Neptune, and there's Earth. So you can see the size compared to the two. And this is why these are called the gas giants. Obviously, the next one is Saturn. And Saturn is the ring planet. And Saturn uh, is about 70,000 miles in diameter, and it lies from the distance from the sun of 887 million miles. Temperature on, 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 on there is uh, minus 300 degrees, and uh, it has uh, 18 moons. The largest moon uh, would be Titan, who actually has an atmosphere. And the Saturn is, without a doubt, one of the most beautiful um, objects you'll ever look. You put that camera in and put this on a TV screen, and uh, it's not that big, but I'd say that uh, the, 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 it's about the size of a, of a tennis ball, maybe a softball. Uh, and it's quite incredible. 
Those are the divisions in the rings, you can see them. Uh, they used to think that the rings were 100 miles thick, and then as they got uh, a little more advanced, they said, well, they're 10 miles thick. Then somebody said, well, now they're uh, about a mile thick, and now they've come to believe that those rings are only a couple of inches thick. And, of course, they're made up of debris uh, from some busted-up, broken-up planet that uh, got them. There's another picture of them. Notice the, notice the moons here. There's one there, one there, one there, and one there. Notice the little shadow there. That's one of the moons eclipsing it, and the shadow can go across you can see that on Jupiter. Uh, see that on Jupiter. Now this would be Uranus here, and Uranus is about uh, 31,764 miles in diameter. Uh, Saturn was the god of agriculture. Uh, uh, Jupiter was the king of the planets, and of course Uranus here is the uh, um, sky god. Sky god. This is the first of the planets that was discovered in modern times. It was discovered in 1781 by a guy by the name of William Herschel. And he discovered the planet. And uh, the temperature there is minus 323 degrees, and it has 21 known moons. Uh, you can look at this through my telescope, my big telescope. This is, is very impressive, but it, yet it just looks like a blue circle. Uh, no features on it, you can see. That one on here is a... Is a um, um, an X-ray or a hydrogen alpha picture to try to do something with it, but that's basically what it looks like right there. This is Neptune, and of course Neptune is the god of the deep, Roman god of the deep. The Greeks called him Poseidon, and uh, it's uh, King Neptune is is the king of the sea. You know all that guy down there with a the pitchfork, with half man, half fish. And uh, the diameter of Neptune is about 30,700 miles, distance from the sun, 2,794,000,000 miles. Again, well below zero, Neptune has eight moons. This is four pairs and photos of Neptune showing you the difference. Those white spots on it, again, are storms in its upper atmosphere. Then we come to, uh, well, that's the that's moon, Trion, right there. That's one of its moons. That was taken by uh, one of the flybys, that one they did out there when they went out to the end of the solar system. Now, this is Pluto. We don't have any good pictures of Pluto because Pluto is so small. Pluto lies at a distance from the sun of 3,675,000,000 miles, and yet it's no bigger than about 1,400 miles in diameter. So it just looks like a pinpoint. And uh, there isn't a ground-based telescope that will even show uh, any disk. This was taken by the Hubble. And it has one moon, Charon, and of course that's what it's down, stop, excuse me, that's uh, right here. And uh, there's the Pluto, and there's, there's there, and there it's, uh, there's its moon. Pluto, obviously, rightly named, was the Roman god of the underworld. And because uh, it's so far out. And I'll tell you what, if we, you were on Pluto looking back at the sun, the sun would look probably just like the brightest star you could see out on a night tonight. It, it is so far out there. I mean, it barely gets anything from the sun at all as far as heat, and that's why it's, it's so cold. All right, we're going to move from the planets here, and we're going to uh, get into, uh, into some of the deep sky objects or galaxies. Now, this is an artist's rendition of what our universe probably looks like. It has a core central, and then it spirals out this way. The arrow there in the square would be approximately where our solar system is in this great galaxy. Now this galaxy probably is 200 million light years from one end to the other. Into some of the deep sky objects or galaxies. Now this is an 
artist's rendition of what our universe probably looks like. It has a core central, and then it spirals out this way. The arrow there in the square would be approximately where our solar system is in this great galaxy. Now this galaxy probably is 200 million light years from one end to the other. And a light year, most people don't know, but a light year is the, the time it takes uh, light to travel in one year. Light travels. Light travels like this. Watch this. Watch this green thing. Watch the screen. See that? See how fast that came up there? That's because light travels at 186 million miles a second. Not a minute. A second. Light years were developed to deal with the vast distances once you got past our planet. Because when you start talking about galaxies and nebulas and all the things that we're looking at, you're talking about vast distances that the mile will no longer work. And now we've gotten to the point where light years don't work anymore. So now they come up with parsecs and they come up with other terminology. But we're going to stick with a light year. A light year is the time it takes, the distance it takes for light to spend, uh, speed, uh, speed of light, 1,186 uh, 1, miles and miles, a million miles a second. A second. A second. Meaning this, if that's 200 million years from there, to there, 200 light years, if you got in a rocket ship right there and traveled the speed of light, 106,000 miles a second, it would take you 2 million years traveling that fast per second to get to the other side of it. That's how big it is. That's how big it is. We're right here. How many have seen the Milky Way when you've been down south someplace camping out or fishing? Well, the Milky Way is basically, you see where we're at right there? See that spiral arm of the galaxy there? That spiral arm of the galaxy here? That's what we see as our Milky Way. We're over to this side of the galaxy. The center's over here. And what we see as the Milky Way is the spiral arm of that galaxy that we're in coming up through it. That's called the Milky Way. Now, this is basically called the uh, uh, M31. And I... There's a numbering system to these. And uh, back in the 1700s, there was an Italian astronomer by the name of Messier. And Messier was a comet hunter. And he didn't have very good telescopes back then. And what he was doing is he was searching the sky for comets. And he'd see all these blurry little objects that he thought were comets. But once he realized that they weren't comets, so he wouldn't run into them again, he started to catalog them. And so he cataloged them with his initial of his last name, M, and then 1, 2, 3, 4, there's 110 of them, by the way. This was M31. This is the last one, or the 31st one he found. And of course, if you can see it, again, it's a spiral galaxy. There's the center. See, that center looks like it's solid, but in reality, you see all those dark, curly things there? Those are not, that is unresolved stars. They say in our solar system, in our solar system, they tell us that we have 10 octillion number of stars. Now, 10 octillion, uh, an octillion has 27 zeros after it. That's how many stars they say is in our universe. This is supposed to be a, a, a sister universe to us. In other words, they say our galaxy looks like this galaxy. If you look down here, there's another galaxy. It's just farther out. That's another galaxy right there. And you can find that in this galaxy right here is probably as many stars in, that are in ours. The largest number man has ever got to uh, when he set up is a centillion. A centillion has 303 zeros after it. And uh, you can see that uh, these galaxies are quite incredible. You can, you can see this one with a naked eye if you know where to look and you're out in a dark part of the sky. This is called the Pinwheel Nebula. 
It's in the constellation Triangulum. And again, it's nothing more than stars uh, moving out in a fan-like fashion. And all that in there is unresolved stars that uh, uh, this is called the Whirlpool Nebula in Ursa Major. And again, you can see the galaxy here with a little bridge running to another galaxy right there. These galaxies are mixed up with innumerable millions and millions and millions and billions and trillions and octillion and all kinds of stars. Then we have, this is M101. Now here's an interesting thing. You see that little arrow there? That little arrow is pointing to that star right there. And what's happening here, and this is where it was found, this is where this star is what they call supernovaing. It's destroying itself. What happens is that a star, for whatever reason, begins to expend all of its hydrogen and all of its energy. What happens is it begins to collapse on itself. And as it does, it gets about 100 times bigger and gets really bright. And it shows this way for about maybe three or four weeks, and then it faints, gets fainter and fainter, and then it disappears, and that star is dead. And there are guys who just study and look for these things to find supernovas, and that's one that was found in the galaxy M81. <coughs> this is called M101. This is another pinwheel. You can see the spiral arms of it here. It's also in Ursa Major. This is called, uh, now, once we get so many of these galaxies, they had to uh, come up with another numbering system, and this is called NGC 4565. NGC is a term for new general catalog. It's what they used. To, they found millions of these, millions of these, millions of these. And, of course, this galaxy here uh, lies at a distance uh, of about uh, uh, 200 million light years from planet Earth. And you can see up in a corner another distant galaxy. And uh, I'll tell you what, when they come up with the Hubble, they revolutionized and had to rethink the whole universe. They thought that the galaxies like this were just uh, random through our, our universe. But once they started photographing with the Hubble, they found that this, our whole, our, what they call the universe, we call it the second heaven, the firmament, is actually absolutely uh, filled with these galaxies. And uh, one photograph of the Hubble, and I would give any in the world to have a slide of it, but I don't have one. I've never been able to find one. Uh, one slide taken with a Hubble to, uh, telescope out in outer space where they pointed it at a point in the sky. And you could go out in your home tonight and take the head of a pin and hold it at arm's length and cover that portion of the sky. And one photograph that they took, and what they did was they left the exposure open for like eight hours and just let the photons build up on the deal. When they finally developed that photograph, they found one of the most amazing things they've ever found. They found on one picture that they had taken of a part of the sky that you could hold at arm's length with a head of a pin and cover it over 150,000 galaxies on that picture. It is the, it is the most incredible picture I have ever seen in my life. And of course, they're coming to realize that the whole second heaven is filled with these galaxies. Each one of these galaxies holding number billions of octillion stars. They already know, they've already found, with our limited little ability, we've already found 275 planets outside our solar system in these galaxies. They can't see them, but they find them by the gravitation. It's, it's kind of tough to explain. But they've already, and they're finding probably 10 a week. And the last news I got was a year ago, they had 275 of them. Those things are filled with get planets. Of course, there's no life on them. They're not filled with planets because of evolution. They're filled with planets because of what God's going to do someday. You remember when God took Abraham out and God told Abraham about the, uh, the plan that he had for him? Bible says over there in Galatians that, uh, that God preached the gospel to Abraham. How did he preach the gospel to Abraham? He didn't have no Bible. 
You know what he told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15? He showed him the stars. He preached the gospel to Abraham through the stars. That's exactly what he did. Now we're going to get into nebulas. Galaxies are made up of stars. Nebulas are made up of gases. And uh, you need to remember that because that's the difference. A nebula is not made up of individual stars. They're made up of gas material that are illuminated by stars so we can see it within them, but they're not made up like the galaxy. This is called the Veil Nebula. This is called the Crab Nebula. You can see it looks like a crab. This one was, uh, this is in uh, Taurus, the bull. And uh, this one is uh, in uh, July 4, 1054. The Chinese observed a very bright star supernovaing. And when it star faded after about six or eight weeks, this is what was left. And they believe that the Crab Nebula is a remnant of a supernova. And uh, I'm telling you, when you put this on a TV screen, you see it minus the color because it's black and white. You see it just like that. I mean, it's like alien on your face. It's so big. This is called the Crescent Nebula. The thing I want to draw your attention to, this is one part of the sky. Look at the numer millions and millions and millions of stars. And everywhere you look, it would be just like that. And when you got on the other side of those stars, you'd find another set of stars just like that. When we're looking into here, God's second heaven, we're looking into eternity. This is called the Pelican Nebula. Can you see it? See his head? There's his beak coming down. There's his eye. They name them after things that they look like. This is my wife's favorite. It reminds me of me. It's called a Dumbbell Nebula. <coughs> see it look like a dumbbell or an apple core? This is called the Cop Nebula because it looks like a donut. Obviously, also called in the scientific terms as the Ring Nebula. Well, I'll tell you something else. We put this on the screen with that camera, minus the color, because your eye can't see the color. If you look through a telescope, you don't see color. These certain cameras pick up color, but I guarantee you, that central star right there is an 18th magnitude star. Uh, for you to see that visually, you'd have to go to Mount Palomar and look at it through a 100-inch telescope. I can take my telescope, put this camera in it, and that central star sticks out like it like it's got a beacon on it. And you see that thing just like it is, just like that on a TV screen. This is, anybody guess what this one's called? Anybody guess what this one's called? What's it look like to you? Real loud. What? A who? An elephant? Yes, the United States. Who said that? Yes, sir. That's called a North American nebula. See, there's Mexico down there, Florida, Canada. There's Kansas City. So it's called the Trifid Nebula. It's in Sagittarius. And it's called the Trifid, tri being for tri or three, because they're split up into three, three points there, one, two, three. This is called the California Nebula. It never looked like California to me, but... Now, I want to talk to you a minute about what we got here. One of the other things we talked about was Orion. Remember what he said? Can thou bind the sweet fluences of the Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? Orion is your key constellation, mentioned two times in the Bible. I don't understand it in its entirety, but I guarantee you, Orion is connected some way, some shape, some form with the Antichrist. I don't know exactly how it all works in. I know that Orion ties into the Great Pyramid over there in Egypt. 
I know that Orion is, is, is a type in the Bible of Nimrod, the mighty hunter, type of the Antichrist. And I know that everything about him, everything about him in that constellation. Now, the thing is this, and I don't have a constellation picture of Orion, but the bottom line is Orion, let me see if I can just put one on here that you can see. Orion is like this. It has one star here, another star here, another star down here, and another star down here. Basically a square. One, two, three, four. In the middle are three stars. One, two, three in a row. That's his belt. This nebula here is his sword. When you got that three star there, that sword hangs down. That's his sword. Now the Bible says, bind the sweet influences of the Pleiades. We already know now that's the type of the church. Seven sisters, seven periods of church history. And then what is the rest of it? Loose the bands of Orion. Now let me show you what is in the band of Orion in the central star. And this, my friend, doesn't put goose pimples on your back. I don't know what does. The great red dragon, Revelation chapter 13 and 12. Right in the middle. In fact, that star right there is the middle star in the band. What you got in Job, and I don't fully understand it, but what you got in Job is he's asking the question, can now bind the sweet influences of the pleading? That would be the Holy Spirit of God that influences the church. How do you bind that? You bind that by taking it out with the rapture of the church, and once the rapture goes, what happens? The bands get loosed on Orion, and there he is. There he is. I don't understand it all. I'm glad I don't. But I'll tell you what. Now here's the Pleiades back here. There's the seven sisters. That's what you saw last night, William. Uh, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Now, when you, that's obviously not a naked eye picture, but through the naked eye you can see seven stars. And the Bible talks about binding up their influence, shutting it down, and then loosening the bands of Orion. And that'll be the great red dragon. Just as simple as that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the most incredible things that you are ever going to get into. And then, again, look at the stars. Look at the stars. The gospel and the stars, the Bible said in Psalms 19, that there is no language or speech where their voice is not heard. Wherever you go, God's universal witness in the sky is there. And it's exactly wherever those American Indians were, wherever any man was, that he didn't have a Bible and he didn't have Christ. What he did have was the third thing that declared the glory of God. There has never been a person on the history of this planet that hasn't looked up in the sky and saw what is up there, and then wondered how it got there. We know from our studies in Romans previously that God has written on the tables of man's heart the Word of God. When a man looks up into those heavens and sees those things, and then asks in his heart where they came from, the Bible says that he's the true light that letteth every man that cometh into the world. You know what I believe? I believe that in the American Indians and the, uh, and the, uh, uh, and the uh, Incas and the Mayans and all of those groups, I believe that you had satanic groups that were much like unsaved people today, and I believe you had American Indians who followed God, followed the light that God gave them, and they became uh, in commune with God in God's own way. And then just like today, you have people who 
hear the gospel message and reject it and go after all the ungodly things of the world, then you have God, people who hear the message and they go toward God. I personally don't think it's any different back then than it was today. That's why you find American Indians who worship the Great White Father, who, and somebody says, well, they killed people and they scout people and they killed. Hey, you would too if somebody invaded your home. What are you talking about? They were protecting what they had, but they reverenced the Great White Father, they reverenced the Great Spirit, and they had some kind of understanding about God and who He is. On the other hand, you have the, the Mayans, you have the Aztecs, you have the people down in Central and South America who were the other side of the coin. They, they worshipped the sun. They built pyramids. They did human sacrifice. They went the other way. And there's no doubt in my mind, and I don't be able to profess to be able to lay it out and understand it all, but I'm telling you this, human nature never changes. We think because they didn't have a church, we think because they didn't have a Bible or Bob Alexander standing in front of them preaching every Sunday or some missionary that they couldn't get the gospel. God got the gospel to them through the third part of the installment that declared the glory of God. Now, when they looked at those heavens and wondered, just like you listen to me preach and wonder, the Holy Spirit of God took it to the next level. And then it was on them to take it any farther or not. That's exactly how it worked. But look at those stars. Look at those stars. You know what the Bible says? And this is another sermon that you can put into the gospel of the stars. The Bible says, and I, I think it's one of the greatest things in all the, in all the Bible. The Bible says in... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 41, it says this. It says, All flesh is not the same. There is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. You know what that's reference to? It's a reference to the judgment seat of Christ. There's one glory of the sun, we now know that that's Christ. There's one glory of the moon, we now know that that's a picture of the church. But then the Bible says that there's stars, and stars are a picture of individual Christians. And the Bible says there's one star different from another star in glory. You can see it. See the bright stars there? See the stars here? See the not-so-bright stars here? See them getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer? Finally, they're down there so far you can barely make them out. That's what the judgment seat of Christ will be like. Some of God's people will shine with a brightness that'll, that'll just be unbelievable. There'll be a bright star for God. Others won't be so bright. Others will be so faint and so small that you'll never be able to see. And it's all said. There's one glory. There's a glory of the physical. There's a glory of the spiritual. And just as there's one star different from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The gospel in the stars is a way, in a unique way, to take a new form of the gospel. Well, not a new form of the gospel, but in a different format that most people don't understand. Show them through the heavens. Show them through a presentation. And then let the Holy Spirit of God do for them. I think it's one of the greatest things of our times, simply because of this. We live in a world that won't hear the Bible anymore. We live in a world that won't come to church anymore. We're just about as heathenistic as a world as we could ever get, much more probably than the American Indians. Maybe the only thing left that people listen to is the third thing that declares God's glory and let them, Holy Spirit of God, take it and see it through the heavens that He created. Every head bowed and every eye closed. And you can turn the lights on. 
Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. We thank you for all you do for us. And thank you, Father, for uh, your love and your goodness and your mercy to us.